Welcome to A History of Violence, a podcast all about violence throughout history. Oh, that's tautological, right? <laughs> okay, so uh, today I'm joined by Claire Elliott, who's going to be talking about weird war animals with me. Uh, hi, Claire. Hello. Um, Claire is one of the world's foremost experts on animals, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so today's going to be a pretty light episode, especially compared to the last one. It's really sunny in Scotland for once. We're sitting with some beers. It's going to be a very chill discussion about violence this week. So today we're going to talk about some of the strangest uses of animals in war. Not just the usual suspects like dogs, horses and elephants, but some animals you wouldn't expect in a battlefield. Yeah, we recently got a puppy as well and he's kind of wandering around now. So writing this episode has been a nice excuse to think about how useless he would be in a combat situation. We could maybe use him as some sort of distraction, though. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of going to be a distraction during this, maybe. But anyway, right. Um, okay, so we'll just fire right into this. Um, our first topic is going to be, you know, um, about an animal that's perhaps so fluffy and cute that it could stop arrows. Um, so first of all, we're going to talk about the Battle of Pelusium. The first Battle of Pelusium in 525 BC was fought between the Persians and the Egyptians following rising tensions between the respective kings. It was actually a really important battle for the history of the region, but the most eye-catching aspect is the apparent use of cats as a defensive measure. Um, the Egyptians were like early fans of lol cats uh, and really like worshipped a cat goddess called Bastet. Um, they have all these like, hilarious drawings in the hieroglyph. They look like terrible sort of children's mm-hmm. drawings of cats. Um, but anyway, knowing this, the Persians apparently put cats out in front of their battle lines to prevent the Egyptians from firing at them. This allowed them to advance easily and defeat the Egyptian army. This account is taken from uh, Polenius, a Macedonian general whose famous book Stratagems in War contained 900 short descriptions of famous military strategies. I really, really want to read this book because it seems like it's just these short paragraphs about different like hot tips and tricks to beat enemy generals. If he was alive nowadays, he'd be a YouTuber doing things like five cool tricks that will blow the Athenian general's minds. But um, yeah, the book was written in the second century AD, so you know, over five hundred years after this battle and many of the battles which he describes. As you can imagine, with someone writing so long after the fact, a lot of these descriptions are more legend than fact. But it's pretty short and clear, so we can actually just give the full quotation from the book here. When uh, Cambysius attacked Pelusium, which guarded the entrance into Egypt, the Egyptians defended it with great resolution. They advanced formidable engines against the besiegers and hurled missiles, stones and fire at them from their catapults. To counter this destructive barrage, Cambysius ranged before his front-line dogs, sheep, cat, ibises, and whatever other animals the Egyptians hold sacred. It's ibises, right? Ibises. Ibises, yeah. um, the Egyptians immediately stopped their operations out of fear of hurting the animals, which they hold in great veneration. Cambysius captured Pelusium and thereby opened up for himself the route into Egypt. I'm sure I just butchered all those names. But anyway, it's a very good sort of pithy description. Um, the Greek historian Herodotus visited the battle site less than 100 years after the battle, so his account is probably a bit more reliable, even if it is less colourful. He describes the battle and the sort of whole conflict in a lot of detail, but he never mentions this cat strategy. You feel like he would bring something like this up, it's so memorable and cute. So it's a fair assumption that maybe this never actually happened. 
still, I love the story so much, and it's a sort of early precursor to all our favourite cat memes. The battle was also really important for reasons other than this sort of feline fixation. Following his victory, the Persian king became pharaoh, ending the 26th Egyptian dynasty and starting the 27th. This was the first, but not the last, period of Persian rule in Egypt. So yeah, it's great. I'm a total cat person. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're more of a dog person, right? Yeah, I like dogs better, but it's mainly because I'm allergic to cats. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I guess we can go from venerated cats to bond dogs. And um, A lot of our ideas for this came from children and adult TV show Horrible Histories, <laughs> um, which we love to watch. Um, from a sketch called Dodgy War Inventions, and this is one of those. So I'm going to talk about um, anti-tank dogs. Um, so it's only fitting that dogs make an appearance, but this isn't in their capacity as man's best friend. No. This is in their capacity as Hundmeinen, or dog mines. Um, these were used and trained by Soviet, Soviet Russian military forces right up until 1996, as well as by various other militaries during the Second World War, including Germany and the US. The basic premise of these dog mines is horribly self-explanatory. Dogs were taught to climb under the tanks with explosives strapped to their backs. Originally, they were taught to leave the bomb and retreat, but this routine routinely failed and was replaced um, by an impact detonation procedure, which sadly killed the dog on impact. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. The Soviet and Russian military forces, um, as I said, were the main proponents of this weapon, being cash-strapped and up against the mighty German tanks. There were 13 schools established for training dogs, um, four of which trained what they called anti-tank dogs. The use of these anti-tank dogs was widely ridiculed at the time and after the fact. German propaganda used these dogs to discredit the Red Army. Um, Not out of sympathy for the hounds, but because they said Soviet soldiers refused to fight and they send their dogs instead. (laughs) That's a good line. Yeah, exactly. Um, The weapon also backfired um, when they sent their new dogs into combat. So these dogs had been trained to like smell the tanks and run under them. And um, they were trained to run under Russian tanks. So there's kind of no surprises for guessing which tanks they ran under. So this effectively meant that the Soviets had trained the dogs to run under their own tanks and to blow up their own army. Um, the effectiveness of these dogs is also widely debated. Some Soviet sources claim that around 300 German tanks were damaged whereas the actual documented successes number is only around 12. Um, Despite this, they continued to train anti-tank dogs right up until June 1996, which is like insanely late for what is essentially flogging a dead horse. Dead dog. Dead dog, yeah, (laughs) thanks, you got it. Um, Luckily, there's less attempts to do this now, although I did read about um, an attempt during the Iraq War to use dogs for this purpose mm. but I don't think that it all No, I can't imagine it would. I think there was like an attempt to do something similar with bats as well by the Americans, right? Yeah. Like similarly just completely backfired. Mm. Yeah, I mean animals are trainable but they're maybe not that trainable. Um, yeah, so next we'll go into two sort of um, examples of animals getting used in war, both somewhat involved in Hannibal, everyone's favourite like wacky Carthaginian general <laughs> um, who gave his name to the 18s leader so yeah, I mean, this is he's always got a good story in him, I suppose. Um, Hannibal was one of the most innovative generals of all time, but this is surely his finest hour. Uh, faced with a superior Roman fleet, he filled clay jars with poisonous snakes and had his soldiers throw them onto the Roman ships. This killed a lot of Romans, but more importantly, it threw them into a total panic and caused them to retreat. 
Um, but this next example has Hannibal, would have had Hannibal coming off less well, although I think he got lucky on this occasion. The sources seem to differ. Um, elephants had already been used in warfare in India and Africa and even parts of southern Europe for centuries before Hannibal famously drove his elephants over the Alps to invade Rome. However, the Romans could have used one cool trick that the Carthaginians don't want you to know about. Elephants are, for some reason, terrified of pigs. Um, it might be the smell, but most people seem to think it was the squealing that upset the elephants, and the effect of this squealing is heightened if you set fire to said pigs. Um, various armies have used this strategy to good effect, with the siege of Edessa in 544 AD seeing the defenders repel an elephant attack by hanging one pig out of a tower, sort of like Michael Jackson for baby style. Apparently the pig's terrified squealing just drove off this war elephant. Um, I'll just read the um, source on that from uh, Copius. But the Romans, by dangling a pig from the tower, escaped the peril. As the pig was hanging there, he naturally squealed, and so this irritated the elephant, and stepping back little by little, withdrew. Poor pig, but lives were saved uh, thanks to this guy. If only the Romans had used him against Hannibal. So, if you're attacked by elephants, now you know what to do. Pigs were also used in a different but equally unpleasant way in the Siege of Rochester Castle during the First Barons' War in um, uh, 1215. <laughs> yeah, I've written this down now. Um, 1215. Um, so, although King John had signed the Magna Carta famously, the Barons didn't trust him to abide by it. John attempted to purchase Rochester Castle, realising its strategic importance. But his enemies saw the writing on the wall and decided to hold up in the castle with as many supplies as he could fit and maybe around 150 men. Rochester Castle is one of the oldest and most impressive in England, uh, dating back to the Norman Conquest, and the battle to take it suited the grand location. The Barnwell Chronicles stated that our age has not known a siege so hard-pressed nor so strongly resisted. The defenders held out for weeks against siege machines and starvation. The strong keep was impervious to catapult attack, so the king had his sappers mine under the walls of the castle and in the keep. The royal army also sent a message back to London requesting 40 of the fattest pigs, the sort was good for eating. It's good to know that they were still thinking about like not wasting the, yeah. the best pigs. Like, yeah. um, so there's a movie about this siege which I would like kind of recommend called Ironclad. Have you seen it? Uh, it's basically like the Magnificent Seven, but in medieval England. Um, the historical credentials in the film are like pretty dubious and get almost everything about the war incorrect. Um, but the fight scenes are very watchable and like, super violent. Um, even more watchable is Paul Giamatti playing like an absolutely unhinged version of King John. It's some of the like hammiest acting I've ever seen. It's also got Charles Dance and Kate Mara in it, and they're just all having a terrible time. Um, but no, it's, it's worth a watch. It's on Netflix. But anyway, um, in the movie, they heard the pigs under the mine shafts and just set them alight, which makes for like a very memorable scene. And this collapses the walls of the keep. In real life, the pigs were likely slaughtered before and their fat was simply used to start the fire. Um, but still, the effect is the same. It did manage to collapse the keep. But cleverly, the Norman keep had been built in sort of two halves on two foundations. So this means that when the fire collapsed one half of the keep, the defenders could simply retreat to the other side. So as cool as the pig bomb idea is, it's undone by some excellent Norman Minecraft skills. In the end, the defenders had to give up when they ran out of food. Uh, all but one were spared, which was nice of King John, and totally different from how he's portrayed in that movie and a lot of other sort of places. 
Um, he might have come to regret that decision, though, since he eventually lost the war and died, although his son Henry did retain the crown instead of the French King Louis. So I feel like all the stories we've had so far have sort of demonstrated the folly of using animals in war. Um, like from these examples, I would conclude that it's not such a good idea. So I thought we would talk about a good example of an animal in war, a wholesome story. Well, the most heartwarming story there is. <laughs> yeah, the most heartwarming story. Um, so this is the story of Corporal Wojtek. Wojtek, Wojtek. Yeah. You should say it with confidence. <laughs> um, the soldier bear. Uh, Wojtek was sold as a cub to some Polish soldiers in Iran in April 1942, who were making their way from Siberia to the Middle East after being released from Russia after the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941. That sounds like that unit like had such a story as well. I mean, yeah, yeah. no, they'd been everywhere. This unit, and they, yeah, um, the bear cub was adopted by they were the 22nd Artillery Company, and they adopted the bear and they went from Iraq through Syria to Palestine and Egypt. And along the way, he was raised by the soldiers um, who initially fed him condensed milk from an old vodka bottle um, because that, apparently that was all he could eat. He later enjoyed drinking coffee in the morning and took a special liking for beer, which he was given as a special treat. Sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> special treat? You're drinking beer now. Um Although according to one of the members of the 22nd company, for him, one bottle was nothing. He was weighing 200 kilograms. He didn't get drunk. So not quite like me. Not, yeah, he's not a one-can Dan, <laughs> which for international <laughs> listeners means you have one can of beer and you're out. Yeah. Um, anyway, by the time the unit reached Egypt, Wojtek was a fully grown bear. And in order to get him passage to Italy with the rest of the company, he had to be drafted into the Polish army. As an enlisted soldier, he had a paybook, rank, serial number, and ration book, although he wasn't paid and he received double rations. <laughs> yeah. He's also said to have helped his unit during the Battle of Monte Cassino by carrying 45-kilogram crates of artillery shells. The boxes he carried usually required four men. He learned this behaviour and others, like drinking beer, from his unit and is said by numerous sources to have managed this without dropping a single one. His efforts earned him the promotion to the rank of corporal. To commemorate the occasion, the Polish army changed the official emblem of the 22nd Company to a bear carrying an artillery shell, which honestly looks bizarre, and you should check it out. Yeah, it is very cool. Also, you'd be absolutely furious if you'd survived that battle and didn't get promoted in the bear In the bear did. <laughs> well, apparently, like, people were reporting to him because he was the rank of a corporal, and there was privates who were like, you know, yeah. their boss was a bear. Fantastic. <laughs> but, you know, members of his unit said that Wojtek was quiet and peaceful, um, yet he took a disliking to a monkey and another bear who'd been adopted by troops. He got kind of jealous. Um they also said that the soldier bear helped them keep up morale. Can't imagine. Yeah. Um, Wojtek liked play fighting and boxing with his unit. And he would ask um, members of his unit for unlit cigarettes, which he would then eat. <laughs> he would also sleep with the other soldiers if they were cold in the night, which I don't know if that's sweet or... I think it's pretty wholesome. Yeah, it sounds wholesome, but it could be like that movie that... What's it called? The Revenant. The Revenant. The Revenant. Sorry. Yeah, anyway, at the end of World War II, the 22nd Company were transported to Scotland, um, where the Polish-Scottish Association made Wojtek an honorary member. After demobilisation in 1947, Wojtek was given to Edinburgh Zoo. He was massively popular among civilians in the press, 
and um, was frequently visited by former Polish soldiers who tossed cigarettes for him to eat. Wojtek lived out the rest of his days at the zoo and died aged 21 in December 1963. His legacy lives on, though. If you're in Edinburgh for any reason, um, go to the Princess Street Gardens and you'll see a bronze statue of Wojtek and a, po- a fellow soldier walking together. And there's also a ton of statues of the bear soldier in Poland. It's a really great story. It's my absolute favourite. Yeah, 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 because, you know, no one was harmed necessarily. You know, the bear travelled the world. <laughs> yeah, it definitely worked out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, one last bonus story, which I thought was pretty cool, um, doesn't really involve animals, but rather humans um, impersonating them. During the Scottish Wars of Independence, there was a tendency for castles down in the borders to swap hands several times. Most of these are destroyed now, uh, raised to prevent them being used by the other side. And one of the most foreboding fortresses was uh, Roxburgh Castle, which was perched on a hill surrounded by water on three sides. And it is mostly sort of destroyed now, but you can still see parts of it. Um, So there was a commander called James Douglas, who's better known as the Black Douglas. And he hatched a bold plan to take the castle while avoiding a long siege. Um, By the way, I should mention that the Black Douglas is just like a really interesting and important character from this time. He was knighted at the Battle of Bannockburn and went on to become one of the most pivotal figures in the Scottish army. He was a really close friend of King Robert the Bruce and was actually entrusted to take Bruce's heart to a crusade. Because of the incessant wars with England, Bruce had never got to go and fight in the Holy Land. So following his death, his heart was cut out and put in a silver-encrusted box. Douglas and his knights took it to Spain, where they joined um, Alfonso's army in the fight against the Emirate of Granada. Um, Douglas fell in the Battle of Tabor, but his body and Bruce's heart were recovered and sent back to Scotland. So yeah, I mean, pretty spectacular life and death there. Mm. Anyway, that's a bit of a digression. Um, in 1313, on February 19th, Douglas launched his plan. This was uh, Shrovetide, the night before Lent, so many of the defending soldiers would have been drunk. Uh, just over, no, just 60 Scottish troops used um, cowhide of different colours as a cover to approach during the night tricking the watchmen on the battlements. Apparently you could just see sort of dark shapes moving around and assumed that this was grazing cattle. Once he reached the walls, he used these long ladders on hooked spears to quickly scale the wall. Apparently these portable siege ladders were actually invented by one of the troops who was the first over the wall, so I mean, he also seemed like a pretty interesting character. Um, they quickly took the walls, opened the main gates and overrun the defenders. Legend has it that the uh, commander of the castle managed to retreat to his keep within the castle, where they hurled insults at the attacking troops. This continued until the governor took an arrow shot right through the cheek. Um, although that seems sort of too good to be true as an image, right? Yeah. Um, the remaining troops in the governor surrendered and were given safe passage to the border. So this was like a really impressive piece of trickery there, but um, you know the castle fell back into English hands about a year later, as was usually the case in the borders. Um, but yeah, I mean, it did establish Douglas as an important sort of up-and-coming commander in the Wars of Independence. So yeah, I don't know, pretty great trick. It feels like it could be one of those ones for the stratagems book. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I feel like you got all the serious history and I just chose funny animals. <laughs> well, <laughs> Which, no, you know, no, probably no, no. reflects our interests. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, no, that's great. Um, yeah, fun, especially the boy type part. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening and thanks, Claire, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, hope you'll be back. And, uh, yeah, um, yeah. see you all in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Um, if you have any time and want to support us, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That's like the number one thing that would, would help. But uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.